Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hello everyone, welcome to In Focus podcast. I'm Ji Sampath, the Hindu's social affairs editor and your host for today's episode. Countries around the world have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic by imposing a lockdown. From Wuhan in China to Italy, Spain and most parts of Europe and the United States, cities and nations have forced people to remain indoors. Shops, schools and restaurants have remained closed and businesses have been asked to either run their operations online or suspend operations altogether. This drastic measure has been justified as necessary to slow down the spread of the virus to flatten the curve of new infections as it were. The argument is that this would give the state more time to build capacity to meet the challenges posed by a surge in cases, to organize hospital beds, ventilators, protective equipment and so on. But one country has bucked this global trend, the global consensus, if you like, of enforcing lockdowns, and that is Sweden. Sweden has pretty relaxed, has been pretty relaxed in its response, trusting its citizens to follow social distancing norms rather than enforcing them. It has only imposed a restriction on gatherings bigger than 50 people. It has allowed schools, shops, restaurants and even bars to stay open. And what's more, this approach by the Swedish government appears to have the support of the majority of the population. Now, how is this relaxed approach working out for Sweden? Or is a full lockdown the best response? Can a lockdown really eliminate a virus? Are there any lessons here for India? Is it viable to expect herd immunity to do the job at all, rather than pinning all our hopes on a vaccine? To tell us more on this, we have with us today an infectious diseases epidemiologist from Sweden, Dr. Karina King. Karina is with the Department of Global Public Health in Karolinska Institute, based in Solna, Sweden. She holds a PhD in infectious epidemiology from Imperial College, London and has done specialized work on patriotic pneumonia. Uh, Karina, uh, first of all, uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I would like to start by asking you, uh, what are your thoughts on Sweden uh, going the other way from the rest of the world when it comes to uh, COVID-19 response strategy? Yeah, so Sweden is basing its um, strategy on flattening the curve, which I think is what everybody is trying to do. So their overall intention is the same. Um, But I think the notable difference here is that they've stated that it's to keep it within health system capacity rather than necessarily trying to stop as many transmission chains as possible. And as you said, this is really built on the narrative that the people trust the government and so recommendations instead of rules will be sufficient. I think a few interesting things to note here, though, is that one in four people in Sweden are either first or second generation immigrants. And so whether the trust is the same across the whole population is not necessarily clear. And it's notable that first and second generation immigrants have had a high proportion of cases in Sweden so far. So it's taking a different route. Uh, to try and achieve not necessarily the same outcome, which I think is an important nuance to note. Okay, so you're saying Sweden's approach is not uh, driven by uh, 
by strategy or strategy of trying to get herd immunity as, or something like that? So it's not necessarily been explicitly stated that herd immunity is the aim, but I think that that's clearly what is trying to be achieved. Um, if you're not trying to stop as many transmissions as possible, then you're trying to get to a point where the infections will stop naturally, which is the point of herd immunity. Uh, one of the challenges with herd immunity as a concept at the moment is that we just don't know enough. So, you know, there's uh, data from China where they've shown that 30% of those that recovered didn't have a sufficient enough immune response. Um, there's cases in Korea where it looks like the virus might have been reactivated or that they've had second infections with the same virus. So the concept of herd immunity, I think, is still very tenuous. Okay, but, but isn't herd immunity uh, the kind of, uh, say, so far as finding an end to an epidemic is concerned, isn't that how all epidemics end when the general population develops uh, herd immunity or, of course, you develop a vaccine? Aren't these two the only two ways uh, the pandemic could end? Yes, yeah, so I think there's uh, a few more options that are available, but would just be harder and possibly um, a bit more challenging to do on a global scale. So a vaccine would obviously be the best choice. Uh, we've managed to eradicate uh, smallpox using a vaccine. We managed to contain things like measles to a point where we have very few outbreaks. Um, so a vaccine would be great. Naturally acquired herd immunity is not something that has actively been used for an infection with high mortality at a global level before. I think the only other disease model I can think of where we use a naturally acquired herd immunity is chickenpox. So it's not really a proven approach for managing a pathogen with pandemic potential. Okay, okay. So, uh, coming back to the lock lockdown uh, issue, wouldn't it be a legitimate argument to say that uh, Sweden's approach of of leaving uh, the final uh, act of uh, implementing it to the citizens rather than a top down approach would be better over the longer term? Do you think a kind of a drastic approach in where where like ninety percent of the economic activity comes to a standstill is it sustainable over the long term? Yeah. So. Um, Long-term lockdowns, I do not think are sustainable. Um, as you said, there's a lot more going on here. It's not just about infection control and protecting lives in the short term. There's also the economic and the social consequences. So for me, the purpose of an enforced lockdown is either to stop transmission entirely to the extent that you can eliminate the disease from the population. And we can see that example in New Zealand or it's to bring it to a level of control where other strategies can take over. So effectively, you're buying yourself time. And I think this is what most of the world is using lockdowns for, as somewhat of a blunt tool to gain control over the situation and scale up things like testing capacity. In Sweden, leaving it to the people to decide how to spend their time and where and where they can go um, this doesn't necessarily buy you as much time as a lockdown would. Uh, so how does uh, Sweden's record uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, controlling the spread or any other uh, major yardstick uh, that we would you want to use here 
compared with that of its neighbors such as Norway, uh, Denmark, and Finland? Yeah, so, and just to be clear, so Norway, Denmark, and Finland all instituted some form of lockdown um, at different time points in their outbreaks. So Finland very early on. Um, when we look at probably the most concrete measure of how countries are doing, which is mortality per population, Sweden currently has 91 deaths per 1 million population, and that's actually the 12th highest number globally. And that compares to 49 per million in Denmark, 25 per million in Norway, and 11 per million in Finland. So on a concrete outcome of deaths, Sweden is, uh, I would say, doing much worse than its neighbors. The control in the other settings will start to be loosened. And I think the main concern people have is around a second wave and the second wave being possibly deadlier than the first as controls are um, as controls are loosened over lockdown. So I think a lot of the world is looking towards Wuhan at the moment, who has released some of its lockdown and people are waiting to see whether they'll see the resurgence that everybody is worried about. Right. So hasn't Sweden's argument uh, been sort of uh, to say that uh, the deaths which might be occurring now in the case of Sweden, where, you have, as you said, the, the number of deaths per million is much higher, it would end up eventually uh, being more or less the same even with its neighbors when they lift their lockdown. Like Sweden has been relaxed throughout. So there is no particular moment when you can say Sweden is going to lift any lockdown because it hasn't locked down in the first place. But what happens when Norway, Denmark, Finland lift their lockdown? Because even in the 1918 flu epidemic, we, we understand that the second wave was deadlier than the first. Yeah. So for me, this is really about how you've used the time during lockdown to prepare. So what is the exit strategy that you're using? So the lockdown time should really have been used to scale up a testing, contact tracing and isolation approach, in my opinion. So if that can be effectively rolled out where every single suspected or possible case is tested, all their contacts are tested, traced and isolated and monitored um, then you should be able to keep the resurgence under control. So this is really yet to be seen whether countries will have been able to effectively mobilize those resources to prepare for um, coming out of lockdown. Okay, it's, it's interesting uh, uh, that, you, uh, that you would mention uh, about exit strategy here because today in India we had uh, a lot of uh, speculation about how uh, uh, India would... Uh, uh, would, would conduct its exit strategy because April 14th was the last day of the first lockdown, as it were, when we went into lockdown for 21 days. And today, the Prime Minister has said that uh, he's going to extend it for another 19 days till May 3rd. So, as an epidemiologist, uh, I mean, what are your observations on India's approach uh, in terms of the lockdown and so on? Yeah, so the lockdown in India, uh, to me, looked like very early on to try and contain the spread of the virus as much as possible. I think um, the thing that needs to be done very, very carefully with lockdown is it has to be tailored to each individual setting. And, you know, lockdowns are very, they can be very damaging economically and socially. So 
they can invariably exacerbate inequities. And so the important thing is that a lockdown is coupled with social support systems. You know, those people that are day laborers or are unable to isolate. So if you have shared water and sanitation facilities, you cannot isolate in a way that you can if you have your own. So it's just to make sure that the policies are um, whole and not just looking at disease containment. So they need to consider the whole society. Okay, in, in your opinion, which country do you think has done the best job so far uh, in terms of either responding to the virus or in terms of managing the lockdown? So I think some really notable examples are South Korea. Um, you know, they had a very large outbreak very early on, which was swiftly and effectively contained with a low mortality. And notably, without a lockdown, they did this through huge scale up of testing um, and they are very well prepared for that. So that's an example where they had a lot of pandemic preparedness before this happened and managed rapid scale up. I think other examples um, that have used testing very effectively as well are Iceland and Germany. Again, using different models for scaled up testing, but also effective. And then I guess the other global outlier in the opposite way to Sweden is maybe New Zealand, where they've stated that they are aiming for elimination rather than containment or mitigation. Okay, can you talk a little bit about uh, how you could uh, use a lockdown to eliminate? Because once the virus uh, is in the population, the, the, it, 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 I mean, how, how do you eliminate it uh, literally? Because it only, the, the only other way forward is to build immunity. So uh, you can maybe break the chain of transmission and buy time, which is what uh, most people say lockdown achieves. But how do you eliminate a virus by enforcing a lockdown? Yeah, so if you can break the chains of transmission enough, so generally a month, um, if you think that it uh, normal, the average time that disease takes is about 14 days. So if you can break the two chains, two transmission chains, you should be able to contain that uh, infection within sort of household or community units. And if you can get the virus into a small enough uh, number of units, then scaled up community-based testing of all suspected infections along with household and community contacts and quarantine could mean that you can break enough chains of infection to reduce the R0, so this is the reproduction number, that's the average number of people that someone with the infection will go on to infect. If you can get that to less than one, then the virus will naturally die out within a population. So what has been the uh, R0 with the coronavirus uh, so far? So we've seen, uh, so the R0 is a function, first of all, of the virus itself, but also of the different settings that it's within. And so things like how often people meet each other, how dense is the population, and what interventions are in place. Um, so the estimates have varied dramatically. Uh, we now see that a lot of European countries during lockdown have estimated their R0 to be less than 1, so around 0.8. Um, but we've seen some suggestions that the R0 could have been as high as 5 during um the peak of transmission in places without control strategies in place, which is an incredibly high R0. I think the average that's being put forward by the WHO is sitting more around 
which is more more infectious than normal seasonal flu. Okay, so one of the uh, one of the one of the key points of debate uh, so far have been that, uh, especially in the US, uh, the the number of uh, uh, deaths which have been attributed to the coronavirus is not very uh, different from the seasonal flu deaths, according to the CDC's own estimates for the season for the period from the October to March uh, 2020. So, uh, and there have there have also been say uh, some people saying that uh, many of uh, uh, many of the older uh, people who may have uh, caught the seasonal flu anyway uh, have probably uh, also caught this virus, and their deaths have been attributed uh, to the coronavirus, regardless of whether uh, regardless of what the actual cause of death might have been. So, the numbers uh, there are some sort of disputes over the actual numbers, which could legitimately be attributed to uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, what what do you what would you be your comment on this? Yeah, so because we've had such an increase in focus around things like hand hygiene and physical distancing, you would really expect other infectious disease uh, burdens to drop. So you'd expect to see things like uh, diarrheal diseases go down, other common respiratory infections like flu, especially because this hit towards the end of flu season in a lot of countries. Uh, in Europe and America. Um, so you would expect to see the mortality attributed to that go down. Uh, so it is a valid point that, you know, some of the mortality from coronavirus is probably traded off against mortality uh, lives that have been saved through those intervention measures. In terms of being the same as flu, uh, yesterday the WHO came out and said that the um, that coronavirus is 10 times, uh, has a 10 times higher mortality than swine flu did. So the notion that this is just like flu and those people would have died of flu anyway, I don't think is valid. Um, whilst the mortality is being concentrated in older age groups, we are seeing uh, still considerable mortality in younger groups and high healthcare usage in those groups. So it's definitely, you know, one of the things that's going to be important to look at is not necessarily just coronavirus attributed deaths, but excess mortality during the outbreak in different populations. Right. Yeah, I guess we need to wait for uh, the excess mortality figures to get a full picture on, on this particular question. Uh, my, uh, yeah, my last question to you, uh, Karina. When do you think uh, this battle uh, against COVID-19 uh, is likely to end? Will it, will it be over by the end of the summer or is it going to be a long haul, lasting a year or uh, longer? <laughs> the million dollar question. Um, so how long it takes, I think, will depend on several factors. So one is uh, vaccines. Um, you know, we've seen various estimates for how long a vaccine will take. It's hard to know. Um, there's lots in the pipeline, but until the trials are done to see whether effective, it will be difficult to know how long it will take to scale up and get to everybody. Um, the other is effective treatments. So um, if effective treatments become available sooner, then, you know, we might be able to lift restrictions and treat the disease instead of prevent it. Um, and then the other is kind of in countries that are still very, at the very start of their outbreaks, how they'll progress. So there's regions where it's unclear how bad it will be and how 
well the time has been spent to prepare those settings for the outbreaks. So, you know, this isn't really over until everybody in all countries in the world have managed to contain the outbreak. So anywhere that the anywhere that the virus is still posing a threat will pose a threat to the rest of the world. So it's really a collective effort on when this will end. I think I think by the summer might be a bit ambitious though. Because uh, many people are are wondering about this question because for them, the, the way they feel the, uh, the effects is primarily through the lockdown. So I don't know, do you think there is an, there's some kind of an optimum upper limit beyond which lockdown is not going to help? It could become counterproductive given the economic uh, costs involved. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, lockdown needs to be used carefully. It's, as I say, it's quite a blunt tool to achieve what it's trying to Um and the long-term economic, social, mental health impacts of being on lockdown for that for a long period of time are difficult. And the longer you're in lockdown, those sorts of impacts will start to outweigh the benefits of virus containment. So, you know, it's really important that governments are using that time in lockdown to effectively strategize for exit strategies. Um, and... For me, that really, really translates to scaled up testing and contract chasing ability. Um, the alternative is you have intermittent lockdowns uh, going forward. So people come out, then you monitor to see if there's going to be, if there's cases increasing, you go back into lockdown and you keep doing cycles until you reach enough, um, until there's a vaccine or until you reach herd immunity even though I think there's some issues with that um so I think that is also incredibly damaging um again economically socially and from a mental health perspective to be permanently cycling through lockdowns so it's just really really hoping that governments can effectively use the time in lockdown to plan for sustainable strategies that I think need to focus around testing Right. I think, yeah, the scaled up testing and uh, really tight contract contact tracing and maybe the possibility of intermittent uh, lockdown accompanied by careful uh, planning. I guess these are some of the key uh, key things one uh, one might be uh, hearing again and again going forward. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you, Karina. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.